Welcome to the Clifford Chance podcast, where our experts discuss pressing issues and trends faced by the business world today. Hi everyone, my name is Rob Tang and I'm a counsel based in the Sydney office of Clifford Chance, specialising in international arbitration. Hi everyone, my name is Alexandra Zhu. And I'm Stephanie Brown. Alex and I are both associates and we are also based in the Sydney office of Clifford Chance, specialising in international arbitration. This is the third episode of Clifford Chance's Australian Arbitration Podcast Series. In today's episode, we will be talking about the circumstances in which an arbitration agreement might be extended to third parties. This is a particularly interesting topic given the recent High Court decision of Reinhardt and Hancock and the ongoing Reinhardt saga in Australia. Before we delve into Reinhardt, Stefan Alex, could you please tell our listeners who third parties to an arbitration agreement are and their rights and obligations under such agreement? Sure. First, when we talk about third parties, we are referring to those who are not formal signatories to an arbitration agreement. Arbitration is, at its core, contractual in nature. As such, parties are individuals, states or corporations that have formally agreed to an arbitration agreement. Signatories are therefore able to enforce and be bound by those terms. When we talk about third parties, we are referring to those parties who have not signed onto an arbitration agreement and therefore cannot be bound by or able to enforce its terms. I agree, Steph. A third party should not be compelled to go to arbitration by virtue of a clause they were not privy to or agreed to be bound by. This principle is reflected in both the New York Convention and the UNSA trial model law. That's right, Alex. Article 2 of the New York Convention relevantly provides that Each contracting state shall recognise an agreement in writing under which the parties undertake to submit to arbitration. Article 7 of the model law is quite similar as well and achieves the same effect but with different options as to form. Article 7 reads, Arbitration agreement is an agreement by the parties to submit to arbitration all or certain disputes which have arisen or which may arise between them in respect of a defined legal relationship, whether contractual or not. The other option then further provides, an arbitration agreement may be in the form of an arbitration clause in a contract or in the form of a separate agreement. So we have established that, as a fundamental rule, arbitration agreements are only binding upon signatories. It's also important to remember that arbitration is inherently private. Third parties are generally not able to attend arbitral hearings. However, There have been certain exceptions when third parties have been held to be bound by an arbitration agreement. Alex and Steph, could you please tell our listeners what some of those exceptions are? Certainly. Third parties may be brought in by the Group of Companies Doctrine, which sees arbitration agreements being extended to companies within the same group. An example of this is the ICC case Dow Chemical. The matter concerned a dispute between Dow Chemical Company, together with its subsidiaries and ISEVA, in which ISEVA challenged the arbitral tribunal's jurisdiction, as Dow Chemical Company itself was not a signatory to the contract. The ICC tribunal upheld its jurisdiction as Dow Chemical Company exercised absolute control over its subsidiaries by either signing the contracts or participating in their conclusion. Also, third parties may be brought in by piercing the corporate veil. Under Australian law, for example, the courts may disregard a corporation's separate legal identity and impose liability on individual members to prevent a person using a company structure to evade legal duties. Piercing the corporate veil, however, is only used in exceptional circumstances. 
In addition to the two points mentioned by Alex, third parties may be brought in as beneficiaries of rights under a contract through assignment, agency and succession, or by signatories consenting to the joinder of a third party. For example, the English Court of Appeal in Philatona Trading and Navigator Equities has recently upheld a decision by the English Commercial Court that a principal was entitled to exercise his rights under an agreement entered into by his agent. The matter concerned Mr Chanakan, a Russian businessman whose agent entered into a shareholder agreement in May 2005. The agreement, whilst in Russian, was subject to the laws of England and Wales and arbitration at the London Court of International Arbitration. The judge in the first instance found that Mr Chanakan was the disclosed but unnamed principal party to the shareholder agreement. The issue before the Court of Appeal, however, was whether the terms and surrounding circumstances of the agreement excluded Mr Chernakin from exercising his contractual rights, including the right to arbitrate. As noted by the Court of Appeal, although a disclosed principal may sue and be sued on a contract entered into by an agent, it was common ground that the terms of a contract and surrounding circumstances might demonstrate an intention to exclude a disclosed party. Despite this, the Court of Appeal upheld the trial judge's conclusion that there was nothing in the contractual terms or background to the shareholder agreement that demonstrated an intention to exclude Mr Chernakin and that the arbitration proceedings were validly constituted. Thanks, Alex and Steph. In the recent Reinhardt decision, the Australian High Court also confirmed that a third party may receive the benefit of an arbitration agreement if they are claiming through or under a signatory. Alex and Steph, would you mind summarising for our listeners what the Reinhardt case was about? Not a problem. For those unfamiliar with the Reinhardt saga, it is helpful to go back a few decades to the early 90s when Lang Hancock formally declared the four children of Gina Reinhardt as equal beneficiaries of certain trusts. That was significant from a monetary perspective because those trusts had and still have substantial shareholdings in companies within the Hancock Group that own very valuable mining tenements, including the Roy Hill, Hope Downs and the Mulga Downs tenements. That's right, Alex. Since about the early 2000s, Gina and her children have been in various disputes regarding Gina's actions in her capacity as trustee of those trusts. This included allegations of financial wrongdoings, including with respect to the title of certain mining tenements. Gina and her children then entered into a series of deeds for the general purpose of curbing those allegations. The deeds in question each contained an arbitration agreement, providing that any dispute under the relevant deed were to be resolved by way of confidential arbitration. The interpretation of those arbitration agreements have now been subject to numerous court decisions. The 2019 High Court decision involved proceedings that had been commenced by parties to one of those deeds that we've just discussed. What is relevant for our discussion today is the cross-appeal by three companies, who were not parties, that claims brought against them by two of Gina's children, Bianca and John, should also be stayed. Those non-parties sought to rely on the releases, acknowledgements and covenants contained in the relevant deed. This is where the extension of arbitration agreements to third parties is enlivened. It was argued that Hancock Prospecting and Hancock Resources, who were both parties to the arbitration agreements, had received valuable mining tenements as knowing participants in Gina's alleged fraudulent and dishonest conduct. Hancock Prospecting and Hancock Resources allegedly transferred those tenements to third party companies in breach of trust. This resulted in the third-party companies allegedly holding those tenements as constructive trustees for Bianca and John. The third party's defence to the allegation that they knew the tenements were being transferred to them in breach of a trust 
relied on whether Hancock Prospecting and Hancock Resources were beneficially entitled to the tenements. They argued they were parties to the arbitration agreement through or under Hancock Prospecting and Hancock Resources. This nexus was sufficient for the majority to hold that the third-party companies were persons claiming through or under Hancock Prospecting and Hancock Resources, and therefore were parties for the purposes of the Commercial Arbitration Act in New South Wales. This was expressly limited to the discrete controversy of the case. Thanks, Stephen Alex. I'm also aware that there was a recent decision from the WA Supreme Court Court of Appeal earlier this year which highlights the difficulties parties to an arbitration agreement may have in keeping a dispute within the confines of confidential arbitration, where the dispute involves non-parties to the arbitration agreement. Alex and Steph, could you please provide our listeners with the background to this case? This proceeding differs from the earlier court proceedings as it was not commenced by parties to any relevant deed. The plaintiffs, Wright Prospecting and DFD Rhodes, both claimed interest in the Hope Downs tenements, but were not parties to any deed. This means that there were also third parties to the arbitration agreement, but as we will explain shortly, they were further removed as they were considered to be true strangers to that agreement. The relevant aspect of the appeal concerned the trial judge's refusal to stay the whole of the various proceedings commenced by the plaintiffs allowing those claims to continue while staying the counterclaims between the parties to the arbitration agreement, essentially bifurcating the proceedings. The key issue for the court was whether a dispute involving non-parties could be a matter which is the subject of an arbitration agreement. This is the statutory test under the Western Australian Commercial Arbitration Act for the granting of a mandatory stay. So to determine what the relevant matter is, the court gave consideration to who the parties were as well as the subject matter of the dispute. As the High Court decision of Reinhardt discussed, except for those persons falling within the extended definition of party under the Act, only a dispute between the true parties to the arbitration agreement could constitute a relevant matter and therefore necessitate a mandatory stay. Here, the plaintiffs were accepted to not be parties to the arbitration agreement and further, had no basis to claim through or under another party to join themselves to the agreement. They were, for lack of a better word, true strangers. The Court of Appeal did consider the risk of inconsistent decisions and the need to avoid unnecessary duplication and expense of allowing the bifurcation of the proceedings. However, what was important was that the plaintiffs were essentially first in line. They commenced the court proceedings first and they were considerably more advanced than the arbitration. Further, their claims could not and would not be determined in that forum. This meant that if the whole proceedings were stayed, the plaintiffs' claims could not be determined. Thank you, Alex and Steph. This case shows that in order to obtain a mandatory stay, you will need to be dealing with the actual parties to the arbitration agreement, or party who has a sufficient nexus to the agreement, such that they could claim through or under a signatory. It will not be possible to obtain a mandatory stay if you are dealing with non-parties who don't meet that nexus and are true strangers. That's right, Rob. Also, the Reinhardt saga highlights the importance of making sure you get your arbitration clause right from the beginning. This means that you will need to consider and apply the ordinary principles of contract interpretation and construction. You will need to think about whether the wording of your arbitration clause is actually limiting its scope. Instead of saying, any dispute arising under this contract, parties should consider any dispute arising out of, relating to, or in connection with this contract. Your arbitration clause should be drafted as broad as possible with respect to the subject matter of the dispute. 
I agree, Alex. And that's the kind of language that is used by most arbitral institutions. Akika's model arbitration clause, for example, aims to avoid that very dispute that arose in the Reinhardt saga. It would be great to hear from our listeners what your thoughts are on the topic of third parties and arbitration agreements. Please do reach out to us and we can keep the discussion going. Next time on Clever Chances Australian Arbitration Podcast Series, we will be looking at cybersecurity in arbitral proceedings. Thank you, everyone. You have been listening to the Clifford Chance podcast. Please subscribe to our podcast by visiting cliffordchance.com and follow us on LinkedIn. The content of this podcast does not constitute legal advice and should not be relied upon as such. Specific legal advice about your specific circumstances should always be sought separately before taking any action.